Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and of course, the former Crystal Palace owner, chairman, these days, blockbusting pundit and author, of course, as well, Simon Jordan. Hi, Simon. Danny, nice to see you as always. Thank you for coming in and thank you for joining us to listen. And we know that each week, more and more and more of you listening, we are very, very glad about that indeed. As you know, the theme of this series of the Marathon Bet podcast with Simon Jordan, Danny Kelly, has been the seven deadly sins of football. In fact, we're going to do ten. We're going to make up three towards the end of the series. But today we come to the sin of pride. And now, of course, pride in modern society has come to have two meanings, really. It's not about being kind of uh, puffed up and uh, uh, self-important, although that's what we were talking about at some extent. Also, it just means you love something and you're very, very proud, not proud full, of its work. Here's just a taste of what's to come. Not one single player in an England shirt over the last 30 years has ever matched the pride of the fans. I went to the opening game at Wembley, the opening international. I remember you scoring a goal, Simon? Yes, I think I might have mentioned that before. Was it a cracker, Simon? It was a belter. One of the great goals ever seen at Wembley? Ever to be seen. Danny appeared in the studio in an England kit and he said, it's Gazza's kit from the match. And then he turned round and there was the exact mud marks on the back where he'd slid behind the goal. He'd left the stadium in his kit, gone to a public house in Hampstead, Gaza, and then gone to Danny's place and gave him the kit. But I'd have taken control of the situation. What I tried to do was I tried to fight. And at the centre of that, if I'm entirely honest, which I think is right to be, I think if you're going to be anything in this world, be authentic, there was an element of pride which said, I won't let it go. It's that picture that made me think, Everything is wrong with this world. Wait till you've scored a hat-trick, mate. Wait till you've got 20 goals in the season and show us there's a new supercar. You you listen to people like Mario Balotelli with their T-shirts going, why always me? Why always you? Because you're a moron. And before we get on with uh, this week's edition of the Marathon Bet podcast, which is, of course, about pride... And, of course, you can get involved with our uh, homework, if you like, at Marathon Bet Pod on uh, Twitter, at Marathon Bet Pod on Twitter. And last week we asked you a simple question, who is the biggest sinner in an England shirt or uh, who has sinned most against people wearing England shirts? And the first one's from Paul Coleman. He's at Jazz Beard on Twitter, and he's gone right back to the dawn of time to say Don Revy. Now, for the teenagers listening... Oh, yeah. Don Revy was England manager. He'd been a great manager at Leeds. And debunked, didn't he, to the UAE? He decided to stop managing England when it was the biggest job in world football, really. He went off to the... No one had ever heard of the UAE yep. when Don went off there, and he disguised himself with a false beard to get through Heathrow. Did he? He did indeed. So that was a very good start. Thank you, Paul Coleman, mm. for that. Zugi Chandler at, at Zugi Chandler on Twitter says, David Beckham, when he got that red card, which shows us, of course, that it works both ways, because I wonder if he was talking about... You could equally have said that Simeone was the biggest sinner for yeah. the way he... Of course, he, he Against now, England, yeah. And he now gives it the big hard man, doesn't he, on the touchline for Atletico. That's right. And, of course, what he did was... No, it was just snide, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Chris, who is... I won't go out this long list of numbers. And Chris says, your jacket is the biggest sin. But you're not, you're not really playing for England, are you? And you had a what, my beautiful just, burgundy velour jacket? Absolutely. You've got a blue variant on I've got a blue today. velour one yeah, now today. Very nice indeed. Thank you. Alex Jones, all things Palace, at Palace underscore thing, says, yep. Maguire and Stones. Actually, you're off the hook here. Am I? Uh, oh, yeah. good. Okay. I'll, I'll pause relax. Maguire and Stones looking like Smalling and Jones in ET against the Netherlands in the Nation League semis. Bit harsh. Yep. Slim Dazza, at Slim Dazza, says that jacket would be up there. Your jacket has caused more mm, controversy good, than anything you said. Interesting yeah. that, isn't it? That you're uh, <laughs> such a fashion icon These days, um, that yeah. uh, what you say out of out of your mouth is you think significant compared it? to what you turn up in. Yeah. Absolutely right. Warren Quest, who's at Warren uh, Warren NG three G, uh, says Fabian Delph. 
a bit hard. I mean, I always think players who get picked for England who are not really England players. I mean, you. Carl Palmer, Carl Palmer, Carl yeah. Palmer. Well, um, I like Carl. Uh, Jeff way. Thomas, when he was at Crystal Palace. Don't with you, you dare bring Jeff Thomas. Brilliant into man. It. Hit the corner flag on his only game. Great man and all the rest of it. Got a cap though for England. And yeah. you must have known, and he must have known. Really? Me playing for England? True. Good old Jeff. And of course, True. he's had a hard time since then, but he's done great, great yeah, work, he's hasn't good he? Man as well, Jeff, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Luke Dennis, who's at uh, Luke Den 9 uh, on Twitter, says uh, the biggest crime was a lack of caps from Matt Letitiae. That's an argument that goes on and on True. and on. We had a whole generations, you know, from Glenn Hoddle only getting 56 caps to Tony Curry to Alan Hudson to Matt Letitiae. Stanley Bowles. It don't happen now. If you've got any bit of flair at all, you're, you're in the England squad. You're absolutely. absolutely straight in. And finally, for this section of the show, Nikki, who's Nikki Castle 1207 on Twitter, says Cristiano Ronaldo and his wink to Rooney. That wasn't just a, a, a sin, was it? It was professional football in all its ugly, ugly nonsense. You know, you provoke somebody, you get them sent off, and then you take the pee yeah, out of them absolutely. as they're going. Yeah. These are fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Remember, we'll set your homework each week here on the Marathon Bet Podcast, and you can get in touch with us at Twitter at Marathon Bet Pod. At Marathon Bet Pod. Thanks for all of those. Been international weekend, and we'll start with actually the England team, which we're all supposed to be super proud of. And we'll, we'll widen out to the wider football world in, in a minute. Simon, first of all, let me establish our bona fides, both of us in this department. Mm-hmm. Would you, Simon Jordan, prefer Crystal Palace to win a trophy or England to win the Euros next year? Mixed bag, Danny. Actually, I think I would be very divided. I think if you took me back to my time as owner of Crystal Palace, I'd have to be honest. I wasn't a great admirer of the national team, the national setup. I felt that it was the graveyard for a lot of players' careers. I felt that a lot of things happened in international football that I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, so I'd have to be honest and say, if it were a choice between the national side and my absolute committed Simon Jordan self with Crystal Palace, I'd choose Crystal Palace every day of the week. What about now? Probably a little bit more towards the national side, but not much more. I still think I'd probably land in my domestic football territory. Yeah, and I guess for me, it's not really an issue. I'd always want Spurs to win something. I get very excited when England are doing something in a competition. And also, like um, millions in this country, of course, I've got split loyalties because so many people are not identifying themselves mm. completely as English or Welsh or Scottish or, well, in my case, Irish. So I, I get two punches at it. I get the Republic of Ireland, who used to do well, and now England, who are doing well. But club loyalties in this country run far deeper than the national team, except, of course, and you see this all the time, with people who support clubs that are never in the limelight. Those St George's crosses you see at international yeah. football, they're always Chalfont St Peter FC, aren't they? But part of my conflict, Dan, insofar as national side, is I get fed up with the press and the manner in which they subsequently hype everybody to hero status. You know, you look at the last World Cup, of course we want our national side to do well. Of course we want the opportunity to see us compete against what's perceived to be the elite countries in the world. But then you see our national press, like, you know, the situation with the cricket, with Sir Ben Stokes being the, the uh, you know, the ideal... Following game one Following run. game one, and, you know, absolutely... <laughs> And the heroes, I mean, the narrative that came back from the World Cup last year drove me insane. I think you were in the same camp about our heroes coming back from the World Cup. They beat everyone they should and they lost to everyone that they could or maybe sh- you know should have lost to. So yeah. there's nothing heroic about it. It's just an element of that that kind of gets into my psyche as well. A big question about this, as I say, we're, we're fed this picture that we're supposed to be proud in the positive sense of the England football team. We can talk a lot about the FA a little yeah. later, but the... FA has two things that it's in charge of. Grassroots football, which I'll say here for me, and you can argue with me, incredibly important to the health of the game. And the England team. How important is success for the England team to the health of English football in general? I'm not sure it's hugely influential anymore. I think that the Premier League 
has become so much of a powerful beast that international football, whilst an enormous cash cow, and you can see what FIFA are doing, you can see the 15 billion being forecast from the USA-Mexico World Cup in whatever year it is, Mm -hmm. 2026. And you look at those situations, but I'm not sure, you look across the sports, whether it's football, which is our specific subject here, or whether it's tennis or cricket, and you see marquee achievements, I don't think it really does that much. It doesn't do any harm, But I don't think it does the inordinate amount of good that some people would have you believe when they're building the hype up around it. Yeah, I I think that that changed, didn't it? You know, when I was a child, England won the World Cup and it it did explode in the society. And I think if England won a, a football World Cup... It would be a great thing in, you know, in, in well, not in Scotland, but in British, in English society. Yeah. But seeing four English teams in the Champions League finals and the Europa League finals last year has much more reality about it, about where we are, than whether England does well or not. But just look at the currency of football now and footballers, individual players, whether it's that revolting little twit Neymar or it's other players that run around that cost 200 million quid or 150 million quid. The power of football is very influential, but I think the international side of football has been polluted and corrupted by those charlatans that represent FIFA. I think they're not much better inside UEFA. I think the kind of international makeup hasn't been right. I think the tournaments themselves have lacked the quality at times that you get in domestic football. What we're getting in domestic football is the best of the best. You look at Man City and you probably would find that Manchester City would beat most of the international sides that are in the world stage now. So domestic football has superseded international football. The pride of the players themselves. It was always said, Simon, and maybe we will or won't have fine time to discuss this, that the so-called golden generation, and I wrote some of the names down in preparing for this. I mean, Ashley Cole, John Terry, Rio Ferdinand, Paul Scholes, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, they all won the Champions League yeah. in club football. They all played together. In that case of that seven players, they played more than 40 times together for yeah. England. They were never any good. People put that down to pride. I think it might be something else. But what about the players? I mean, you've got players shifting identity now. I mean, one of your own, Wilfred Zaha. Well, he might be forced to. uh, Declan Rice. Victor Moses went from playing for England to Nigeria. I think there's also an element on that list, Dan, of a lack of pride from some of these players. That's what some people suggested. You know, Shearer wanting to retire early at 29 because he wanted to prolong his domestic career. With David Bentley, a player that came out of the ether and was a very talented player that didn't want to play for the 21s and would only play for a certain... Or the full national side, even if he didn't necessarily merit it. Paul Scholes didn't play yeah, his full. Paul Scholes didn't, fo- didn't play his full tenure of opportunity, and I think there is an element of a lack of pride anymore in playing for the national side. And if you look at some of the comments that are coming out at times about playing for national sides from certain segments of the media, they are quite disparaging of players commitment and attitude and outlook. Specifically, Scotland, mm. where players are called up and don't want to come. And you have an element of that with Wells as well. You look at Ryan Giggs's career. He didn't turn out for Wells as many times as you would think he He's would. He's got some front and asking Gareth Bale to turn up every a- time. Absolutely. <laughs> and you look at those things and say, pride. Do you have enough pride? And, you know, as a country, what I always felt and what I feel today is that no, there is no parallel universe where the commitment... I don't care what these players are doing. I don't care what Gareth Southgate is doing with this next generation of players. Not one single player in an England shirt over the last 30 years has 
ever matched the pride of the fans. That's, of course, the, the contrast that's always made, mm. isn't it? When you see the players not quite... It hasn't been a problem on the Southgate. They've usually been absolutely at it. Yeah. You see the players not quite at it, and yet the, the ground in some far-flung foreign city is three-quarters full, horseshoed, with those white and red flags, and you think, wow. It's one of the things uh, this country has that in sporting terms is unique to it. Whatever sport we participate in, we have fervent, committed fans that go beyond the pale. But England has won World Cups in global sports in recent times. Yep. Cricket this year, the Rugby Union World Cup. Yep, in both cases, they've made the decision to centrally contract the national team. Mm-hmm. It couldn't happen in football. I do get that. No. But would it actually work if, if they almost took the best 25 players and said, we'll lend you back to the Premier League when, the, when, when it's right for your fitness and, and, and development, but we're going to make you into the world champions? Too much money. Too much, that ship has sailed. If you look at central contracts in cricket, and to some extent in other sports, they are because the sport itself doesn't quite have the financial efficacy or veracity that football has. And I just think that domestically, football now is so influential, so all-consuming. The Premier League, the battles that are going to go on in Europe over the, the UEFA Champions League and the potential extension of that from 13 to 21 games and the ambitions and ideals of the Italian clubs or the Spanish clubs that have pride in their league to try and catch up with the Premier League are all going to change the direction of travel. So I can't see how that could ever manifest itself. The only thing you could possibly think is if Gareth Southgate is continuing patronising the youth forever and a day, that maybe that might be a central contract position because these youth players aren't necessarily going to get games in some of these well, elite clubs they well, play for. Well, it's time to leave out sort of people at like Kyle Walker's age to replace them even younger players. You are getting mm. to a stage where it starts to look like the under-23 setup of old, doesn't it? I'm very carefully pulling the pin out of this hand grenade because I don't want to damage myself. And I'm going to throw a roll across the table to you now. One of the most obvious examples of absolute pride and self-absorption and puffed upness is the National Stadium at Wembley. Should, <laughs> should we be proud of Wembley, Simon? <laughs> Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. Why not? I mean, I, I think we certainly should be proud enough not to sell it to some American-Pakistani billionaire that has only achievement in English football is to buy full and relegate it twice. <laughs> no, I think absolutely we should be committed. I think the, the ideals that we built Wembley under in 2004 to 2007 or whenever yes, exactly Brian right. Barwick and um, Ken Bates were involved and those dreadful politicians that came on and created a whole different dynamic. And poor and old st- Trevor Brook enforced to PR it. Yeah, and the stadium <laughs> going from 357 million to 730 million. Perhaps we have a bit more pride over the public purse. But by the same token, yeah, I think we should because I think there's something unique about English football. The fact that we do have the most powerful domestic league and the fact that we do have the best supported league in world football and then one of the best supported leagues that's our second tier but in Europe it's still one of the best supported leagues illustrates there's something unique about our football illustrates there's something unique about our culture so the Wembley Stadium mentality needs to form part of that so yes I do think we should have absolute pride so what about people like me who think they've built it in the wrong place I'm not against having a national stadium although I see that other great football powers don't have it Italy doesn't have one Germany doesn't have one Spain doesn't have one granted Brazil would count the Maracana as the national stadium but those are the ones I think of if we had to build it and I preferred it when they were going around the country I mean surely an industrial estate that's very hard to get to in North London and I speak as a North Londoner was the wrong thing they should have found a site for it in the middle of the country because it just looks like another example of London gobbling up everything well I just think it's tradition I think ultimately there is something about having pride and values in your tradition there is an argument to be made that ultimately if you don't evolve 
and you don't keep on moving forward, then you regress. They built a, a stadium which, by comparison to the amount of pride that you've probably got in the Tottenham Stadium, now Wembley Stadium looks like... It's a, a generational change, though, yeah, isn't it? absolutely. Wembley Stadium looks like a poor relation as our national stadium. I don't agree with you. I, I think that we gave the world football. I think there's an element of us taking it back to some extent by the powerhouse that our domestic league is. If we can leverage the principles that we've had over in years gone past and use Wembley Stadium as the iconic image that it presents in sportsmen around the world why shouldn't we have the modern version of pride rather than you know what the seven deadly sins says pride is actually a, you know pride a negative fall, thing yeah a negative thing why shouldn't we have the modern day version of pride on this one i went to the opening game at wembley the opening international and i realized that you scored I played in the, in do i remember you scoring a goal simon yes i think i might have mentioned that before was it a cracker simon it was a belter one of the great goals ever seen at wembley ever to be seen i went to the first professional testing of the stadium which england played brazil for the opening stadium you remember mm-hmm. an odd game Ledley king played center midfield for england uh, as i recall Odd that he was fit. Um, odd that he was fit enough to play, and uh, fantastic because he's good enough to play anywhere in that England team. I remember sitting in it and thinking, it's a really interesting achievement because it's huge and uh, and all that. I, I've never quite got the vibe of it. We'll argue about that another time. What's the best experience you've had watching England as a matter of interest? Have you ever been proud or unproud of, of England and its supporters? I think probably the 96 European Championships and specifically and explicitly the game against Scotland. I wasn't proud of the antics of Gascoigne and the the mocking of the dentist chair because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of taking the pee out of the football establishment because you did go out, you did take liberties, you did get drunk, you didn't set a role model example to anybody else, you know, and we understand that Gascoigne has his challenges. But I felt in that game that as a nation, playing against the Scots gives you a great cause in your mind. And the style and manner in which we played in that game with the expectation that was on the England team, I thought they were quite brave. Obviously, when you see wonderful goals, as Paul scored in that game, then you get a sense of pride. I can't help it, Danny. I don't want to be a naysayer or a Grinch. I find myself watching England with an endless expectation of disappointment. I watched the World Cup. I don't come back from it thinking we did particularly well. I look at the teams that we beat with a Colombian side that had their best players out, with a Swedish side that were blunt, and the other sides that we beat that we should have beaten, and then look at the fact that we had the game in our hands against Croatia and um, ultimately threw it away. And I find myself with a, a complete and utter lack of pride towards our national side. So it's a difficult one for me because I always find myself very, very disappointed. Not wanting to be disappointed, but very, very disappointed. I've got a personal connection to that Paul Gascoigne incident in that game in 96 against Scotland. Looking at me now, it's hard to believe that at the time in 1996, I had a show with Danny Baker on Radio 1, if you don't mind. We were Radio 1 DJs. And on the Sunday after that game against Scotland, Danny appeared in the studio in an England kit and boots. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's Gazza's kit from the match. I said, get away. And then he turned around and there was the exact mud marks on the back where he'd slid behind the goal. He'd left the stadium in his kit, gone to a public house in Hampstead, Gaza, and then gone to Danny's place and gave him the kit. So I have a personal memory of that. My own personal favourite of watching England, Simon, I think it's worth uh, listeners to the Marathon Bet podcast hearing this. 1990 World Cup in Italy. I went to Sardinia to watch the game between England and the Republic of Ireland. Long story of how I got to be going there. Two things about it. It was played in a thunderstorm, you may remember. Gary Lineker's equaliser, crackling uh, lightning down through the sky. But also the security, because of England's fans' reputation, was quite extraordinary. We must have been searched 
four times between the edge of the ground and your seat. So I get into my seat and it's raining because it really was a horribly difficult day of weather. And four or five rows in front of me is George Graham, then king of the world, Arsenal manager, yep. perfectly suited and booted, slicked black hair. And he decides that the rain is too much and he must get out of it, particularly, I suspect, because his hair might start running down the sides of his face. <laughs> and a young Carbonieri, an armed troop, about 17, and he are having a discussion. And he's going, I mustn't stay here. I will not stay here. I've got to leave. And he's going, sit down, sir, in broken English. Sit down, sir. No one is moving. Because they really were mad about the security. George Graham stands up again and goes, I mean, this is happening four rows in front of me. I'm George Graham and I'm leaving. The next thing, this kid pulls the machine gun into George Graham's stomach. And suddenly George Graham wasn't George Graham anymore. <laughs> and he sat down. The football kind of failed into any significance after that for me, watching all that happen. We might come back to international football in a minute, Simon, but uh, when we were preparing for this show, you uh, you said to me, well, we can talk about the pride of the nation, the England team, all we like, but actually the natural, oddly enough, because I wasn't sure how we were going to do pride yeah. as, a, as yeah. a deadly sin, until you said to me, actually, pride is the almost, along with money, the motor of English football. Yeah. It is the single greatest motivator of every person and institution in the English game. And, I'm to, and you started with a, with a mea culpa, a confession of your own. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think pride was at the centre, to some extent, of my demise with Crystal Palace. You know, I wanted to be successful. I wanted Crystal Palace to be successful under my watch. I was prepared to spend comparatively a king's ransom to do it. But at the centre of my desires towards the end of my tenure was a sense of pride. When the banking system collapsed and when I was running out of money and bleeding out of my eyes with Crystal Palace, you know, like some ravenous beast needing to be fed every single month, I had one thing in my mind. I really don't want to fail. I really don't want to lose this football club. I don't want to lose my football club. I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't want to lose my money. So what I continued to do was to continue to bankroll a football club that really and truly, I think, in life and football and business and wherever you go, you know when your time is up. You do. You know, when you wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you're on your own and you see yourself in the mirror, you know the truth. And I knew that I was in very, very difficult waters. But my pride, my pride and my determination to overcome something, almost like some demented King Canute mm -hmm. sending things back, it wasn't waves that I was sending back. I was sending back bleeding tsunamis that I couldn't overcome. So I sat there and what I did was I ended up through my own lack of courage, I think, to be able to... Someone told me once that quitting whilst you're ahead is not the same as quitting. No. And I had a situation where I could have taken a choice. It might not have been the palatable choice, but it might have saved me a lot of indignation or a lot of financial implication. But because of my pride and because I wasn't prepared, the very things that made me successful, the very things that made me make 100 million quid were the very things that ultimately cost me the best part of 100 million quid. So it's a very difficult one. Everything because, great. Because you can't odds it. You know, you can't turn around and say, well, I'm going to change the way I am once I've got something because the very things that got you into that place will be the very things that perhaps drive you on or undo you. We've known each other for years and we've yeah. never spoken about this, even in the, you know, in the dark of night over a couple of cold drinks. When you've said that, and I can feel almost the burden of self-recognition raising <laughs> off you there, what would you have done differently now? If Simon now, because it's already, it's, you know, it's a decade and a half ago, yep. the Simon now, what would you do differently if you, if you think you could time travel back to that situation at Crystal Palace? In that particular instance, I would not be so brave with myself and irresponsible with the obligations I had outside of football, which are family and obligations to myself, and I wouldn't have put 
tens of millions of pounds and certainly a million pound a month going into Palace at the last win to really wrap it up in a nice little bow for some other buggers to take it. Right? And I would have done, which I should have done, which is basically said, well, I've done all I can do. This is not palatable, but I'm going to have to put it into administration. I'm the biggest creditor. I will let you out of administration very economically, as I chose to do in the end by taking like 150 grand for 40 million quid that the club owed me. But I'd have taken control of the situation. What I tried to do was I tried to fight. And at the centre of that was a responsibility. But there was also, if I'm entirely honest, which I think is right to be, I think if you're going to be anything in this world, be authentic. There was an element of pride which said, I won't let it go. So I think that to answer your question, at the very end of it, I could have taken control and done something that was done to me five months later and saved myself five or six million quid and stopped packaging it nice and neatly for others that now portray themselves as heroes. But... During my time at Palace, I think that my desire to make Crystal Palace be something that not so much others could live vicariously through, but represented what I really want, which was something that was very strong, that was very disciplined, that was very aspirational. And I kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing because some of it was my pride. But it was also the pride that I wanted to have, that I had in certain segments of the fans, because we all have a pride about our football clubs, but I loved the fans at Crystal Palace. I felt they were fabulous fans, especially the away fans, and I felt I owed them something. So their pride was important to me. You're a very positive man. You tend to look forward, not back in the times I've known Sometimes. you. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you have a strong sense of, of, you know, the present sense. Did that experience scar you, Simon? Kick the crap out of me, Dan, to be honest, but that's life, isn't it? I mean, this old mentality of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, the next person says to me, I'd like to punch you straight in the face and see how strong they feel. No, listen, life is about experiences, isn't it? And football is a very difficult place to be. It's a business that the very people that you think should be on your side are the very ones that are against you. It's through the looking glass. It is real. What is black is white, what is up is down, because that's how it is. And football creates a sense of pride. And talking about the negative side of pride, the real seven mm. deadly sin side of pride, it creates a sense of inflated worth. It creates a sense of inflated importance. Look at Alex Ferguson. Look at how he had the audacity to take on J.P. McManus about his horse, the Rock of Gibraltar, because these people get carried away in football. And football has that propensity. You always know you're around football people because they have this little mentality that everything that they say has enormous importance. And now I sit outside of it... I was guilty of it too. You get cut off in this little island, full of yourself, full of your own importance, pride about what you are and what you're not, and what comes out of your mouth is so meaningful. And it is football that does that. It is the nature of how it's represented. It's the nature of how important people think football is. And it is a very compelling industry, but it's also a very disillusioning one as well. You talked about pride being a driver in the deadly SIDS sense of it, and thank you for that, Simon. I can't think of a of a more apt example. It's almost because it's so small and tawdry. There was a guy playing for Sunderland. I don't even want to give out his name here in case I've got the wrong one. And he had scored one goal in a year. He was a centre forward. Right. And he put up on Instagram a picture of his new third of a million pound sports car with his arms folded over it, like, look at me. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And I thought that photograph, I hope I do, you don't tar all professional football. Some of them in the lower leagues are scuffling to pay their mortgage. But in the upper two leagues, it's that picture that made me think, 
everything is wrong with this world. Wait till you've scored a hat-trick, mate. Wait till you've got 20 goals in the season and show us a new supercar. You, know, you listen to people like Mario Balotelli with their T-shirts going, why always me? Why always you? Because you're a moron and you behave like a moron and you set fireworks out of your house and you're generally disruptive. So it's not always you. It's you because it... <laughs> it's you specifically. It's yeah. you because it is you. You know, and you see most recently, you and I have paid some particular interest to this. Roy Keane, who I'm a big admirer of. Yeah, like you know, I like yeah. Roy. I love authentic punditry. I love to see the Graham Soonesses of the world. People might say that they're Jurassic now by comparison to some of the new way thinking. Well, they're older than some people. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the world. You know, in some sections of the world, when we listen to Alan Greenspan talk about economics, no one, or George Soros, no, one, George Soros no, 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 no one, one says, says they're dinosaurs. But in football, if someone's over a certain age, Ooh. no, 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 their, their time has been and gone. Good people, good opinions are relevant. But listening to Roy Keane's recent evening with Roy Keane and, Gary and his, Neville, his little actually, puppet, yeah. Gary Neville, for the evening, was very interesting because Roy had an enormous sense of pride, but of the seven deadly sins kind, not of the pride where you are you know, wanting to have a body of work that you're very proud of. He was talking about the nature of his perception of what was done to him, and he was never complicit in any of it. And I found that whilst engaging... And interesting, and the fans' reaction in the field auditorium was what it was. But Roy was using everybody and everything. There was no dignity, there was no quality in his thinking. It was just salacious, rather ungracious opinions on certain people. And listen, yeah. nobody's beyond the pale. Michael Owen's book now about what he thinks of Alan Shearer and what he thinks of Newcastle and what he thought of XYZ and Freddie Shepard and so on and so forth. No one's beyond the pale. No I, one's beyond the... the you I've know. worked with Michael Owen. I can't believe... I mean, he... Someone put him up to it. Who wrote that stuff for him? That, someone put it up I've to it. I've worked with Michael Owen. You could barely get a peep out I, of the bloke. I know. Somebody <laughs> put a broom up his backside and gave him a bit of personality I, 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 because yeah, ultimately it's not Michael. I know you've Michael. got to sell a book and stuff, but all right, you might have a beef with Alan Shearer, but Newcastle United Football Club pulled you out of the slime when nobody else wanted your wrecked body to play for them and paid you for, what was it, three and a half years Absolutely. to play 15 games a season. And now you can turn round and denigrate. Look, there's plenty of reasons to criticise Newcastle United, yep. but not by Michael Owen. Oh, you listen, I mean, these, these I'm things... I'm going to point But, in a but it, is a, it is a sense of people's sense of perception or value of themselves and we can if we want to and I will because I do take a swing at Newcastle fans because they have a great sense of pride in their football club which creates a perception in their own minds that they are actually bigger than they are Newcastle as we as I've said and it's repeating the same thing Newcastle is a very big football club in Newcastle so pride to my mind across the board if you look at Blatter and Infantino and Platini with their sense of inflated importance and what they've done to the international football that we were talking about for pride reasons for a different dynamic. Their pride was about inflated sense of importance, which has corrupted and polluted the game. Their pride is to believe that football, as played through the prism of their organisations, FIFA, UEFA, etc., yeah. is, for instance, the one that really drives me mad, Simon. I know it's only an administrative idea, but the FIFA World Cup rules overcome national sovereignty. Yep. I'm sorry, in what world, to use your well-trodden phrase, in what parallel universe can a game of kicking a pig's bladder around a field be more important than local laws? I mean, when even Vladimir Putin put up with this in Russia, that they go, FIFA law will be uh, over this city for those 24 hours. Where do they get <laughs> off do they with come it? Off? Yeah, <laughs> Unbelievable. Absolutely right. I, I mean, I mean, I... 
it astonished me that Blatter didn't try and work up some kind of crown that the person who wrote Heads FIFA would actually wear a crown in public Probably because right. he genuinely believed he no, was absolutely. an emperor. This wasn't them looking at us through a rueful grin. This is people that actually believe what they're saying and believe they're entitled to do the things that they've done, you know, whether it's Platini whether it's Blatter, whether they're allegations or they are, whether it's the gang, whether it's Chuck Blazer, isn't yeah, it? Yes. And so on and so forth that have gone to prison because of their behaviour. Football, unfortunately, does bring this out in people. It does bring out an inflated sense of importance, which in the essence of what we're saying, fills the narrative behind pride and the seven deadly sins because it is incredibly arrogant it is incredibly irresponsible in its thinking it doesn't really look behind itself to see the debris that it creates there is a sense of that football has a greater responsibility should have a pride over what happens with people's conduct well that's arrogance because society has massive problems why is football going to be held to standards that society can't comply with whether that's the things that we'd like to see removed which is racism or homophobism but they exist in society they don't just exist on a Saturday afternoon in a football stadium so there's an element of football having a pride about those sort of things or its desire to have a zero tolerance towards it which is in my mind veering and steering towards arrogance albeit there might be a good motivation behind this such a cliche that I'm almost afraid to let it pass my lips, but it's very hard not to believe that the level of pride, self-importance, self-deception that we see, and I'm counting nobody out of this, including, as you say, whole groups of fans, has increased. Is it because of the extra money in the game, or is that just an excuse for people's behaviour? I think it's a sense of entitlement. I think people's perception of what their worth is is based upon what they think they're entitled to rather than what they've really earned the right to believe is theirs. And if you look at the rewarding of mediocrity, if you look at the patronising of average players or average mentalities, if you look at the industry perception and myths that go round, and I've ranted about this, about the ideals in dressing rooms that, you know, it's an inner sanctum crap it's not the inner sanctum it's where people go and change their kit and every now and again something meaningful comes out of a manager's mouth you know the idea that managers must have stability must have a long-term job because it's a short career all nonsense and claptrap that you and i have driven buses through on a number of occasions and in this environment and others but football has this innate belief that it transcends i mean i know it starts with bill shankly football is not a matter of life and death it's more important it's more important than that (laughs) you know and that's having pride but it's also having an inflated sense of importance and i can't help but find it i can't help but find myself steering into that void where you watch certain sports and you see something different you see in rugby for example and maybe i'm wrong But I find myself watching rugby and certain sports sometimes with a greater degree of belief in the authenticity of what I'm seeing and the meaning of it to the protagonists, the players. Well, there's a physical jeopardy in rugby union and rugby league that makes you think even if you're only playing for the money, you're having to put all of you physically and mentally onto that line. But I don't know, Dan, also going off on another tangent, how these players have the audacity to think that what they put out represents anything vaguely resembling pride sometimes when they don't feel like it or they don't fancy it. They live in their little Narnia world and it's not some 
ex-chairman, like old pros that have missed the bus and don't get the same money and are quite vitriolic about it. It's looking back and going, I've never begrudged anybody being paid anything as long as they have pride in what they're doing and put out something that is vaguely resembling their very best. Yeah. And when you hear people like Chris Wilder, every now and again, you know, the Sheffield United manager... I felt proud in the positive sense yes. of listening to a manager that called it as it was. Well, excuse me. By the way, I'm not at Chelsea to make up the numbers. And by the way, why are you talking to me about my players putting up a good effort? That's the bare minimum I can expect from you. That's what makes you proud, but it, that shouldn't be the benchmark. That should be the given. And you're right to say, Simon, that we're beyond the looking glass with professional football, which we both love. The, the irony of this programme is we both love professional football, but I think that's all the more reason to point out its flaws and its ugly faces. The depth to which football and football people think that A, they can make up the rules and B, that they're entitled to something that nobody else in the whole world would believe they're entitled to. Sometimes it comes in the tiniest of ways. You can probably give an example, but I'd love to give you one. This is from a long time ago when I was the editor of a sports magazine and we got an exclusive interview with Ryan Giggs. I didn't do much talking in those days and we were very excited. I sent a really top-class writer down to do it and he was greeted there by the agent of Ryan Giggs, an old boy, not like the normal football agents, but he tried to pick up a few of the tricks. He'd been appointed by Alex Ferguson very early in Giggs's career. Harry I can't remember his name now, but he was a chap who wore a trilby and was much older than the the new generation of agents. And he took our writer aside and in a moment of almost Monty Python-esque brilliance, he said to him, now you do realise, son, that you're not allowed to use the word gigsy or gigsy-wigsy, that we're hoping to copyright them. (laughs) He's hoping to copyright the phrase gigsy-wigsy. The writer has to keep a straight face and go, yes, I understand that, and I will now go and interview one of the world's great footballers. The agents and the players, they fret about the tiniest, stupidest thing, and that's all pride as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But I think it's incumbent upon people such as you and I, and I think there's a space now in society, whether it's in politics or in sport, for people to call it as it is. and to say what they see rather than what fits into people's mindset of being comfortable. And I think we're now in a space, specifically in sport, I think punditry's changed a little bit. There's still an element of you have to decide that you ain't going to be in the dressing room anymore, you ain't going to be a manager anymore before you have the balls to say... Or you're not going to even meet them at the PFA dinner. Yeah, before you have have the balls to turn around and say what you really mean. But I do think we're in environments where we work, I think we call it as we see it. It might not be right, but we have a definite view on things. And I think that's what people like to hear. And I think, you know, people having pride in the positive sense again in the manner in which they represent themselves is something that I go off again on a tangent I used to watch football obviously from my position as an owner and watch the physicality of a Premier League footballer and then watch the physicality of a League 2 footballer and never understand why the body fat content of a League 2 footballer was 12 or 13, 14% and the body content of a Manchester United player was 7 or 8%. The choice is yours. Just because you don't have the innate ability of a Ryan Giggs doesn't mean you can't have the physical attributes and deal with your own conditioning. And football, to some extent has a lack of pride in those areas at certain levels, but there's also a lack of pride in governance. I mean, I'm going all over the place because I think financial fair play, I think financial fair play is an embarrassment. Where's the pride in the fact that ultimately an industry should be regulated by how much money it makes, not how much money it can lose? Yeah. And financial fair play kicking in is about how much money you're allowed to lose. Where is the pride from the point of view of taking pride as a positive attribute in that? We've talked, I mean, wide-ranging about 
the way that, um, as I say, a self-importance, pride, in the negative sense, affects football. Why don't we end this section of the show, if I may, by talking about something we both find in football, professional football particularly, uh, which we are in- immensely proud of. I mean, I'll start to give you a time to clear your mind. I love the fact that uh, football is so, in, the, in, the, in these islands, and in England and Scotland and Wales, so deeply entrenched in our society. So I could talk about watching hundreds of fat blokes playing on a Sunday morning, as I did, though I wasn't fat then, on Hackney Marshes. I mean, that, that strip of land in East London has 110 football pitches. Now, some of them are squished very close together. And I remember it was very easy to play fullback, Simon, because in order to maximise their revenue, to use your words, the authority who owned Hackney Marshes, which in the old days were the old uh, inner London Educational Authority, and then, the, then Ken Livingston's lot. Ken Livingston, yeah. They, in order to fit as many pitches in, because you had to pay for the pitches, they were of the minimum width, so that the edge of the penalty area was only about eight feet away from the touchline. It was a really easy job being a fullback. You only had a tiny strip of land to operate in. And I love all that, but you know what I'm going to say next. To me... If you ask me what I was proud of about English football, I wouldn't say Tottenham Hotspur, I wouldn't say their white shirt, I wouldn't say Wembley Stadium, or even the Premier League. It's what goes on below the Premier League. Call me a re- an idealist or a romantic, if you like, but the idea that a club can come from a Sunday morning club, as we've seen one or two do recently, to the early rounds of the FA Cup, the idea that clubs can fall and rise through that league and always maintain a stadium, often a stadium with floodlights, a core of support as they go up and down the leagues. And that pyramid of professional players and semi-professional players feeding into the insane brilliance that we often see on a Saturday and Sunday in the Premier League. I know this very weekend I was at a wedding. I spoke to a Spanish person about it and he is obsessed about football, obsessed about it. He kept trying to ask me, how can it be possible that teams in level five can have six and seven thousand people at their game. I told him, I told you, I've told you before, on a boxing day, not so very long ago, on the South Coast, I watched a level five game in front of 13,000 people. And it's that, the word is a pyramid, it's that river of talent, but more importantly, of community and passion and history, all flowing up and down the leagues. Think about other countries. The fact that Nearly 50 clubs already have been in the Premier League. It's yep. phenomenal. It's Absolutely. fantastic. And I am deeply proud of that. And for all the negative stuff we might have talked earlier in this podcast, that stuff is making the hair stand on the back of my head. You know, me too. I mean, I look at the ideals that we have in this country and the pyramid system and the uniqueness of what was created. I'm proud of the heritage of the football that we brought to the world. I'm not proud with the way that we've administered it. I'm not proud that we've fallen behind. I'm not proud with some of the antics of our governing bodies and the lack of foresight or thought or planning or ambition or direction or aspiration. I'm not proud to hear about our national stadium potentially being sold off, as we discussed earlier on in the show. Like but a trinket. I, yeah, and I'm not proud that we don't seem to attach value to the football clubs in this country that we used to own that every other nation and their mother seems to own now as our iconic assets because there's nothing wrong with owning a Premier League football club now. They're quite a viable business in this day and age. And I'm disappointed that we seem to have a lack of national pride about who owns our major assets. But that might just be because everything is sold in this country. Maybe Harrods, the London Stock Exchange, everything's up for grabs and football perhaps shouldn't be any different. But there is, of course, you know, my position of a sort of a sense of raging injustice is about the protection of what I believe that we offer. I think we're a unique island. I think we have an indomitable spirit. That's why I sort of rail about the political landscape and believe, not necessarily as fervently as I once did, about the Brexit strategy. And I think football falls into that category because we're such a unique 
unique environments where the hairs on the back of your neck, when you win a playoff final, as I did, and stood on a pitch knowing that 700 million, 800 million people around the world are watching something that you were part of, instrumental in, financing, whatever I took from it on that moment, that gives you an innate sense of pride. When you see your fans travelling up and down the country and you know that the influence that the players and their performances have, it's a double-sided coin there because you're proud of your fans' commitment and sometimes not so proud of your players' endeavours and attainment. So it has both sides of the coin in there. But there is also the value of sport in this country and the value that is attached to it from young men, young boys of 10, 11 years of age, and it always used to give me a great sense of pride to watch the influence when you've owned a football club and you've been in this sport and you grow up and you think about it properly, you realise that the influence it has and it takes people out of lives that sometimes are difficult and challenging and puts them into a world where they have value sets, they have a sense of belonging, a sense of aspiration for 90 minutes or 120 minutes and put them back sometimes into grey, meaningless lives. And it used to infuriate me sometimes. I remember once upon a time, and it's probably a little bit indiscreet of me, pulling Trevor Francis because he walked down a corridor or walked down the tunnel and didn't sign kids' autographs. And I went after him, dragged him back and made him do it before a game, which probably didn't help him in his motivation for a team talk. So I think we lost the game directly afterwards. But I think that you know, football has a great sense of inflated importance but it also should have a great sense of pride about the value that it has. When you see Jermaine Defoe and the influence that he had in that young boy's life, Bradley Lowry, and you see things over there all the time in the press, because we often castigate footballers and what they do and don't do and how affluent their lives are and how bankrupt they are in terms of their morality and what they give back. It's not always that way. Thank you for that, Simon. Coming up next, of course, we'll be adding to our Sinbin squad. And before that, our charity bet. Marathon bets have been very kind to myself and Simon. Allow us each week to pick two or three matches where we try and pick out the result. We get them right. A large amount of money will be flying its way to our chosen charities. Last season, we didn't do very well at this. And this season, we're doing much, much better. And I'm sure a great deal of money um, is leaking away from Marathon Bet and into, as I say, the charities. Three games were decided. We've got more chance we only have to pick three. And so, Simon, we're going to start. Win, lose or draw. Pick a game that you want to put the money on. I think that given that I'm an admirer of... Chris Wilder, and given the nature of this particular fixture, Sheffield United-Southampton is a very, very important game for the Sheffield Uniteds of the world because Southampton, to my mind, are a side that Sheffield United would be looking to get a result against. I think that spirit of Sheffield United, the backing of their fans, if you look at the togetherness of that club in recent games that I've seen them in, I think they embody what English football should be about sometimes, which is further and commitment. So I've just got a feeling that they'll have too much in terms of backbone and belief and determination and unequivocal desire for Southampton. So I'm putting Sheffield United to win that game. Dan Taus from uh, Marathon Bet has joined us. So tell us how right or wrong that opinion might be. Sheffield United currently 10th in the table. I think they'll take that at the end of the season. Still favourites to go down, obviously, uh, 11 to 10. Lost at home to Leicester recently. Mr Vardy turned up and uh, as a Sheffield Wednesday fan, I believe Mr Vardy was growing up. So he, he made sure that they knew that he scored. Then they beat Palace. I'm with you, Simon. I saw Southampton live earlier in the season. I didn't think they were great. Well, they got the draw against Man United when they had a player sent off. But, yeah, my money would be on Sheffield United too. Yeah, after the novelty of having Ralph Hasenhutl as the manager, it's slightly wearing off, isn't it? 
I was going to uh, mess with Simon's head by going for Spurs to beat Crystal Palace, but given that Palace are fourth and table and Spurs are struggling, I decided to give that a swerve. Um, the team I'm really impressed with, it's not rocket science, you look at Leicester City, they've got a load of good players, a manager who's experienced in the Premier League, and one of the sharpest spear points that the game has seen in the last 10 years, and that of Jamie Vardy. Hello, all those Leicester managers decided it was a good idea to leave him out. And I think they'll go to Manchester United fearing nothing. Now, United have beaten Chelsea 4-0 there, we already know that, so so they, they are capable of anything, Manchester United, particularly on that ground. If the fans get behind them, they can be lifted to heights that I think that their team uh, doesn't really aspire to anymore, but the crowd still does. But I have a feeling that Leicester City, equipped with enough good players, that if they can get through the first 20 minutes there, there's nothing for them to fear. And of course, with one of the two of their decent players and Vardy up front, I'm going to go for Leicester to win at Old Trafford. Yeah, Mr Maguire playing against his old team. I think Leicester are 37 to 10. What's your thoughts about them finishing top four? Seven to one to finish in the top four. Do you think they still got a little way to go? I think that's very hard. I think that top six, even you can all find faults in Arsenal and Spurs and Chelsea and Manchester United, but those faults over a season may still not be enough to see them fall out of that top six. Leicester will have to play extraordinarily well to get in the top six. It would be a sign that three teams have done badly if they were finished in the top four. But they are a really good team and nothing would surprise me. Yeah, no, I think they've won the last but two. But nearly four to one against to, to win at Old Trafford. 37 to 10, yeah. So they've, yeah. Oh, they've got a decent chance. And I like Leicester a lot. I like Brendan Rodgers a lot. I know it didn't go down too well when he left Celtic, but I think they will be challenging for what, what the more did he, what more, Dan, what more did he owe Celtic Football Club, really? I think, just talking about pride, he left halfway through a season. Mid-season gig. It? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you pick one more then, Simon, so we make sure we absolutely trounce this this week? Just interestingly, I've watched these two sides recently. I have a particular affinity to Aston Villa because my manager friend Steve Bruce went there. I very much like Doug Ellis. And I'm very interested in the two players that have been signed for the two clubs that are competing in this game, centre-forwards. You know, it's Aston Villa versus West Ham is the game yes, I'm talking course, about. Yeah. And I've particularly liked the boy that West Ham have signed, uh, Sebastian Heller, isn't it? Yep. And I like the guy up top for Villa, Wesley. which is John Wesley, right? For, they bought from Club Bruges. And I'm interested in this game because I think it will be a game that has some goals in it. But I've got a vantage point that Villa at home against West Ham, I don't think travel that well. I think Villa will win this game and get themselves, again, another three points, which will be critical, I think, to their, despite their enormous spend, in comparative terms, I still think they're going to be behind the eight ball to try and stay in this division. Yeah, I like Aston Villa a lot. I've been impressed since they've come up. Obviously, they only had the win against Everton, which was a couple of Fridays ago, but they're 81-50 to to beat West Ham. West Ham, I think, are in a slightly false position based on the last couple of wins that they've had against teams like Norwich and Watford, who have obviously just changed their manager. But Aston Villa, I think, are going to do a Wolves what they did last year, and I think they're going to surprise a few people. So overall, what are those, uh, between them, those three bets? Well, your £20 bet this week will pay over £600 if it comes in, which will be a nice little earner for your charities. Yes, yeah, so a lot of that's relying on Leicester City getting their act together at, at Old Trafford. But as you all say, Simon, the aura of that great ground in Manchester is not quite what it was, and we'll see what happens. Thanks very much to Marathon Bet for the charity bets. We will get this money for them. And now on to one of the juiciest parts of the Marathon Bet podcast with myself, Danny Kelly, and Simon Jordan, of course, as well. It's a bit where we pick our sinners of the week. Gradually, we will populate a whole bench full of sinners from which to pick our team at the end of the series of the ultimate sinners. This week has been the sin of pride. I think we've already kind of hinted who's going to go in. Actually, they're going to add to the quality of our squad, at least one of them, if, if they're fit to play. Who have you chosen, Simon? Well, to take the absolute definitive meaning uh, in the context of seven deadly sins for pride, I'm going to have to go with recent activities of Roy Keynes. Despite the fact I loved him as a captain, leader, you'd have him in your, you want him in the trenches with you in whichever walk of life you're in. Yeah. 
the manner in which he talks about certain aspects of his life, his experiences, whether it's the Irish experience or whether it's Man United and his departure from Alex Ferguson, shows me a lack of awareness and defines pride in football terms in its finest form. So Roy Keane for me. Okay, and well, another one who you could argue was a great player, certainly scored some great and unbelievably memorable goals uh, for Liverpool in particular when he was a kid and for England many, many times. That's Michael Owen. Michael, I've worked with him, I know him, so I've got to be very careful here so far as what possesses a person who normally in, in, in life, you know, you meet him, you talk to him, you try and work with him. He's not one of those for zingers. He's certainly not a thigh-slappingly funny bloke. He's just a very quiet, rather flat personality. Suddenly, this book comes out. All right, I, I guess I, I knew that the tangle with Alan Shearer was going to come up. But for him to take on the whole of Newcastle United Football Club, as I said in the podcast, had taken the sort of broken version of him and said, tell you what, we'll pay a record fee for you, we'll give you a ton of money and you can play virtually when you like. For him to turn round and bite that particular hand after it fed him so voluminously. Oh, Michael, that's terribly prideful and you must go in the sin bin. You just must. Well, there you have it, the whole show, lock, stock and barrel. This week we've been talking about the sin of pride. We'll be back next week again on the Marathon Bet podcast. We'll be talking about another of the deadly sins. Only three to go. Which one will it be? Join us next week to find out. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org.